Sarah Orne Jewett published her American classic, The Country of the Pointed Furs, in 1896, and it has remained a quiet evocation of the best of Maine. In a special edition published by Simon & Schuster, it is described as follows. It tells the story spanning three months' time in the life of a small coastal town called Dunnett Landing in 19th century Maine. A lone female visitor arrives and finds logic with the widowed Mrs. Todd, the town herbalist, who introduces the visitor to many of the town's inhabitants. The visitor's impressions of the people she meets start out simply, and then almost invisibly they crescendo into a deep, intense human portrait. When I read this book, I am moved by the wisdom hidden in the simplicity of the story. The portraits of the people, the likes of whom are today my friends and neighbors, known and unknown. For Jewett, the place described is a best scape for living, in nature, at work, for community. It is a place to see, hear, smell, taste, feel, love, and celebrate the best of what we call home. At the end, Jewett writes, near the woods, we could walk along to the highest point. There above the circle of pointed firs, we could look down over all the island and could see the ocean that circled this and a hundred other bits of island ground, the mainland shore and all the horizons. It gave a sudden sense of space, for nothing stopped the eye or hedged one in. That sense of liberty and space and time, which great prospects always give. What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? These are conversations from the Pointed Firs. Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Firs. I'm your host, Peter Neal. My guest today is Steve Tatko, Vice President of the Appalachian Mountain Club. Steve is a lifelong Mainer, born in Munson, Maine, graduate of Colby College, shaped by the Maine woods, and now dedicated to its preservation for all of us to use and enjoy. In the past years, Steve and his colleagues have increased the AMC's Maine Wood Initiative lands to 100,000 contiguous acres and help to advance the state's 30 by 30 goal, a national project aiming to conserve 30% of each state's natural resources by 2030. Steve and his colleagues have also determined to remove every barrier to passage of sea-run Atlantic salmon and eastern brook trout on AMC land, and to protect with partners to conserve the entirety of Maine's 100-mile wilderness. In recognition of his work, the Maine Northeastern Loggers Association presented him its award for Outstanding Management of Natural Resources in 2022. Steve, welcome. I usually start with asking you where you came from. How did you spring up like a mushroom in the forest here here in Maine? Yes, well, uh, I sprang up in Willimantic, as it were, in Piscataquis County, uh, which we like to think of ourselves as the bedroom community of Monson, because most people know of Monson, but not many folks know of Willimantic. Um, and, but it's uh, it's a it's a beautiful spot on the Wilson River at the head end of Sebec Lake, um, right on the edge of the unorganized territories. And I lived there still, lived there my whole life, except for a brief stint away at college and then a little bit down in, in Augusta when I took my first job out of college. 
But, you know, growing up, the woods were always sort of, they resonated with me in so many different ways simply because they were the lens through which I viewed the world. They gave me uh, a clarity and a sense of sort of who I was uh, and the, the values that surrounded me that made me sort of think about and decide on uh, choices that ultimately led me to this job. Um, so for me, the, the woods and growing up and Willimantic and the people that I've known and their stories um, are all inseparable. What about your parents? Where did they come from? <laughs> my parents, actually, when I was born, my mother did the, the books at the local woolen mill, and my father worked underground in our slate mine. And uh, when I went to work in the woods at 14, and so I bring that up not to say that I had some sort of 1880s childhood, because I didn't. I was born in the 1980s. But I, I bring that forward because, again, those are sort of the value sets that were instilled in me as an early age where you value people and relationships to places and, and the people next to you because they, they legitimately keep you safe in these sometimes dangerous environments. Um, they bring you through tough times, and they, they help instill a love of place and a sense of belonging um, for what it is, for what, for what that place is. My parents... However, we're not, we're not from Maine. They're not, neither one of them are from Maine. They're from upstate New York, where my family has deep roots. So I was the first in my family to be born in Maine. Sort of an interesting uh, occupational dichotomy, sort of right hand, left hand, uh, you know, mind and, and body. You know, one man working in the mine, one woman working with the numbers uh, in the mill. Um, did you have siblings? No, I'm an only child. Isn't that interesting? Yep. Do you miss... The siblings that you don't have. <laughs> I guess I don't know. I mean, I, I always grew up around around people, particularly older people. I was, you know, f even today, I'm one of still one of the youngest people in my town. Um, it's not a place that that uh, has a lot of young people around. So it's sort of I grew up with people. You know, many of my friends early on were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s and 90s. I guess for me, the definition of family was always very broad, much mm -hmm. bigger than I think people might conceive of a nuclear family just because I was that child that everybody kind of took in and raised. How many mentors can one man have? Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think that's what makes a rich life, right? Definitely. Can you remember one anecdote, one, one memory that sticks in your mind of that, that was a kind of formative revelation? Is there anything that comes top of mind? Well, I mean, there were so many. I mean, the, and so many of them, I, I guess I would have in, in retrospect now, where I, I learned something that perhaps the value was hidden to me until I was older. When I think about my family's business, Sheldon Slate Products, and working with Slate and, and having been in that business from an early age, um, it's often misunderstood because it's sort of, you know, at first glance, it's dirty, it's hard, it's dangerous. But it's, it's very unique in that you, we work with natural materials that are irreplaceable. I mean, the, this material is a finite material. And so there's a, there's a real deep sense of innovation and a deep, deep sense of skill and craftsmanship that you have to have at every process from, from carefully extracting the material so that it's usable to uh, manufacturing it. And we had to come up with our own manufacturing techniques, constantly innovating on our own, um, because there is no rule book for how you make things out of slate. Uh, you know, that was just a world that I, I don't want to say I took it for granted, but that was just part of the business and you part took of it who for we slate. were. You took it for slate, not for granted. Never for granted. That's right. That's right. But the, I think my, what dawned on me over time is that there's this dichotomy 
sometimes in life that unless you immerse yourself in the dichotomy, you sort of miss some of the finer points. And by that, I mean, you know, we were in the business of drilling and blasting and and pulling things from the earth. So here's this this dangerous, rough environment. But yet the products that we made took the individual skill and initiative and care and attention and, and real heart to hear what the customer wanted. And, and this recognition that you were making, whether it was a floor tile that people would step on every day or a, a roofing tile that would cover their house or the kitchen countertop that they cooked food on for their families or the slate sink that they bathed their children in to their headstone that, that would memorialize them forever. There's this beautiful arc of this touch point that people allowed us to have in their life yeah. through that product. And it, even though it seems hard and sort of geologically massive, it's a very delicate resource. I mean, doesn't slate just shatter and flake? And in order to even to transport it, it seems to me, it must be difficult. You hit a bump and you break all the you break all the, the roof tiles. Oh, well, you'll have to come visit us. It's actually a lot tougher than that. It's, it's very tough. If you think of it like a piece of wood, it, it's actually... It's formed in layers, and it literally it reacts like a piece of wood. So it's very, very strong. It's one of the only stones that you can have an unsupported countertop and have several you know, feet of unsupported countertop just hanging out into space because it's so strong. Mm-hmm. But, but to your point, it, it takes a, a real tremendous sense of skill and a soft touch to bring the warmth to the product that people expect. They don't always know what they're looking for, but when they see it, it's, it's that immediate sense of connection the human quality that somebody physically put into it out of themselves to make that thing. And, and that, that transfer of knowledge, that transfer of skill, that transfer of sort of dedication into that product, and, and doing that with natural materials, that's always stayed with me. That stayed with me um, in my work in conservation. That stayed with me in how I think about forest management, where you, you have to sort of constantly be balancing individual skill, individual initiative, science, hard physical things that, that are challenging, also with, with this emphasis of, on great heart and great love constantly. I mean, when we think about 19th century in, in, industry, we don't necessarily attribute that sensitivity, that complexity to it. You cut the tree down, you drag it, you throw it in the river, and, and that's that. Uh, uh, but, you know, clearly, just simply because of the danger I assume that you have to know what you're doing. You have to be careful. Systems have to be developed. Uh, and uh, no one really can make a mistake because more than one man can be hurt. Absolutely, absolutely. And, it, and it, those systems uh, were often created, you know, by those very same people. You know, mm-hmm. again, there was no handbook for those things. So, you know, so much of what goes on in the woods is invented on the spot by the collective knowledge of the whole. And the reliance on each other and the sort of the investment in each other's well-being as a, as a family, as a working family, is central to be able to making that work. And, and people really care about each other in this industry. I mean, people will help each other when you're out in the woods. There's sort of an expression that no matter who's in trouble or what they need, when you're out in the woods, you sort of put interpersonal problems or demographics or race and ethnicity, all that behind you. Um, because you're responsible for those other people in that moment because there's no one else. I'm fascinated by the slate thing. We should move on, but I have one last question about it. The products have evolved. 
today. I assume they're different than they were 50, 60, 70 years ago. How old is the company? The company's been around since 1906. Okay. So it's, it's an old company. It has an enormous amount of history. So its product line has changed from what to what? Well, you'd be surprised. The product haven't, haven't really changed so much as they keep coming back. So we sort of keep cycling through these interests. Um, and the strength and the reason I think that it's been able to exist into the present is because it's diversified. And we've claimed this, this niche of craftsmanship in each element of that diversification, whether it's roofing tile or slate shingles. You know, those, that was what the majority of other companies made were those commodity products that you could turn out quickly and in a hurry. We saw more value in focusing on craftsmanship. So we make those commodity products because you have to. You produce that kind of stone. But the family's really focused on kitchen countertops and slate sinks and, um, and monuments and these things that are, that are custom, that rely on real uh, craftsmanship to sort of produce and tailor to what the customer wants. Are we in danger of peak slate? Can we run out of slate? Oh, of course we can run out of slate. But see, that's again, this, is, this always has factored into what was impressed upon me from an early age. Uh, with all natural resources, you can run out of them. Um, and so it's imperative that you understand that, that you take that to heart, and that you involve other people with those decisions so that you can come up with the best solutions for how to address those problems because they are fragile. Well, let's move into the forest and, and talk a little bit uh, about, about the history. Um, there's a kind of stereotypical idea that we, we basically were a, a lumber state. We cut and exported logs, basically. That was the basic trade. Can you talk a little bit about that history? Sure. From my perspective, a heavily biased one for sure, it's, it's almost impossible to talk about the history of certainly the forest products industry in North America without understanding what took place for the first 300, 400 years of Western civilization in North America here in Maine. I mean, Maine had so many firsts. We had the first sawmill in North America in the 1620s in South Berwick. The first wooden ship was built in the state of Maine. The first log drive was held in the state of Maine. And really the principles of what would become industrialized logging, as I mentioned earlier, were all invented from the ground up uh, here in Maine. So uh, the whole industry originated here. And then those skill sets that were developed in these local communities and, and developed out of just practice and determination were translated across the United States. So, you know, when they ran out of white pine and, you know, in that transition from heavy white pine dimensional lumber that you were talking about in the early half of the 19th century into smaller diameter spruce, a lot of those folks uh, that were after white pine literally packed up and moved to Michigan and Minnesota to cut the white pine out there. Literal whole main families went and followed the resource. And then again, their children, those Minnesotans now and those Michiganers now, packed up and moved to the Pacific Northwest to do it again when those, when those logging woods were opened up. So people were species-specific. Well, they were, they were wood-specific, <laughs> wood right? Specific, they, were, yeah. they, were, they knew a business, and, the, and they had a certain marketable skill set, and they went where the resource was. And then, you know, to, to sort of complete that cycle. So, you know, for much of the 19th century, the resource was focused on dimensional lumber. But then in the latter half of the 19th century, as a lot of the big white pine was gone, and then some of that large red spruce was gone, and we started to have a lot of smaller wood, uh, then you start to see people transition into pulpwood production for 
wood-based paper, which, you know, in the latter half of the 19th century was fairly revolutionary. I mean, most paper at that time had been made out of waste cloth, waste rags. And so to be able to use what had been previously considered inferior timber to make into a, a mass-produced product that you could feed into global markets so close to the global market here in the Northeast on the Eastern Seaboard, I mean, it was just an opportunity could, too good to be true for latter half of the 19th century industrialists. It's so interesting that each each species invented its own technology, its own market. Um, you exhaust one and suddenly the other one now, but it, but, but it requires new technology, new process, new new clients even. I mean, it, uh, I never think about it that way. You know, it's all, well, a, a tree's tree, but the social dynamic that's going there, and, and where are all these workers coming from? Oh, they're coming from all over the place. I mean, we, you know, that's sort of the other amazing piece of all of this is the, the, the labor landscape in the state is really fascinating. You know, from a geopolitical standpoint, um, we're stuck into Canada. And so, you know, we've, uh, a sizable portion of what is now the state of Maine was part of New France. Um, and of course, long before any Europeans showed up, it was and still is Wabanaki homeland. And so you get all of those same elements, the, the Wabanaki people um, who are still with us and you know, have rightfully been forest managers for thousands of years, right. uh, the original forest managers, uh, right alongside uh, French Canadians and uh, Irish immigrants and, and uh, Eastern European immigrants like my own uh, ethnic heritage, um, all showing up to work in the woods and then showing up to work in the mills. And so it's a, it's a huge cultural melting pot of, of this part of the Northeast. Not without problems. I mean, there were a lot of lot of problems uh, that arose, and, and those relationships were tough, and they weren't they weren't equal, and uh, there was a lot of disparity and a lot of harm that came from a lot of those labor relations uh, to each of those individual groups. And so, that's part of the history too that we have to unpack and we have to be honest about as we try to find solutions. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with authors and artists who invoke the spirit of Maine. Broadcast live the first Friday of every month here on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal. I'm speaking today with Steve Tatko. Forester, conservationist, educator, and vice president of the Appalachian Mountain Club in Maine. And we're discussing forest history, best practices, and the future of forestry in Maine. The um, Wabanaki people, they managed forests just the way they managed all these other resources well for continuity and sustainability and, and practicality. Um, did they get brought into the forestry industry because it was a different kind of work? Well, they, I mean, for them, they, you know, they knew the rivers. They knew the rivers inside and out, and they had the, the, the skill to, to handle themselves in white water and, and um, you know, just expert canoemen. Um, and they, they were willing to work. They were willing to work far away from home, um, and they were willing to work in the woods. And so, Many First Nations peoples worked on the river drives, you know, admittedly offer for, often for lower pay than their white counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, they had tremendous skill, and they were, uh, particularly amongst certain segments of the main population, you know, it was highly revered to have, you know, a group of Passamaquoddy or, or Penobscot or Micmac or Maliseets on a river drive um, because they just knew the river so well. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, often it's it's been long forgotten, too, that uh, a lot of First Nations women and children actually worked uh, at the end of river drives in a process known as sacking the rear. And, um, you know, you want to talk about a, a backbreaking existence, but, I mean, you literally were wading in after the end of a river drive, you know, up to your chest pulling uh, mostly pulpwood that had been stuck in the bushes after the main drive had gone down through and throwing it back into the river. So you've got, you know, Wabanaki women and children trying to make a little bit of money after the end of river drives uh, just to throw pulpwood back in a frozen river in the end of end of April, into yeah. May. Not easy work. Not easy work, but it was what was available. Yeah. Was there any culturation going on? Was there... Was there social relationships that were being built, or was it, was everybody just in their own little communities with their own sort of social mores and religious beliefs? I think it was. I think you'd find it was. It was a mix of both. I'm. Sh- I think that there there was probably some mixing going on for sure, yeah. but uh, there definitely were deep divisions, mm-hmm. deep deep divisions, and probably those divisions might have faded a little bit the farther away from town you were. You know that common experience of hardship is a great unifier of people. But um, but they were there for sure, mm-hmm. and the role of women and children that 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 also is somewhat surprising. The w- women were were there; they were in the camps, they were on the drives. Yeah, yeah, certainly not in great numbers, yeah. um, and it's not often talked about. There certainly were women in the camps, you know, cooking and providing administrative services at the camps. Um, not real common, but they certainly were there, uh, and particularly in the logging farms. You know, that was the other element of all of this. You had to have somewhere to grow the hay and the potatoes to feed the, the crews and over summer the horses. You couldn't lug horses back up in the, the deep north woods every fall and expect to be able to make any money. So they would have these these huge farms that would house women and children and, and grow those products. And and uh, and those families that grew up there on those logging farms like Pittston Farm and um, the Roach River Farm and things like that uh, you know, were communities under themselves. Are those farms still? So uh, Pittston Farms is still around. Um, it's it's uh, not really a farm anymore, but it's still you absolutely can go and visit there and get a meal and kind of get a feel for what it would have been like. Uh, the Grant Farm was really well known. That's gone. Most of them are, are, are primarily gone now. Mm-hmm. And the pulp mills, it's a different culture, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it just by virtue of the, of the product itself and the way it was being manufactured, there's the, at the beginning it's similar, but then there's this whole other thing that happens which requires a, a, a sort of a different after end, I, I, I would think. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, the, and, and there's definitely a division of labor there too. I mean, you know, the, the paper makers, uh, it's a highly skilled trade. And it was a trade um, that, you know, involved a lot of unionization. And so there were, you know, it was still a hard and strenuous job, but there were some more protections for mill workers uh, because they were a little bit more front country than there were for woods workers. You know, woods work really has never been unionized in Maine. And so, and woods work was seasonal. So you didn't necessarily get that same benefit that you might have if you worked in a mill where you could have year-round employment. Um, But the technology was which was another point of yours, was just, you know, another fascinating history unto itself. I mean, the, the big paper companies had their R&D departments here in Maine. So, I mean, you had people who were making changes all the time to the process to make sure that the, it was economical and competitive and that you could switch markets when you needed to. So it was a real uh, fascinating vertical system from thinking about wood supply out in the woods, um, using seasonal labor, and then eventually year-round labor, and then eventually contractors to highly skilled workers in the mills themselves. And how far did that product extend? What was the export, export range of that product? 
Oh boy, that, that you're asking me something I really can't speak to other than I know, I mean, they, they fed huge markets, huge, huge global markets. I really couldn't tell you how far afield some of those things went. Mm-hmm. So where are we today? What's the state of forest practice in the state of Maine today? Yeah. Well, and before I answer that, I think one underlying theme that has driven all of the technological advances that we've just talked about is the forest itself mm-hmm. and just how incredibly remarkable the forest that we have here in the, in, in the state of Maine truly is. So most people don't know that here in the eastern United States, we are in what's known as the temperate deciduous mixed forest biome. And this is a, a biome that stretches throughout this sort of the eastern United States all the way through Europe picks back up again in Asia um, and sort of occupies that north of the equator sort of middle band. That's a transitional zone from uh, more hotter sort of rainforests uh, into the boreal forest that's just north of us. And specifically, when you look at that biome, this sort of unknown biome, perhaps one of the biggest drivers of why nobody knows what it is, aside from the really long and wonky name, is the fact that it's that forest is virtually gone. It is the forest that was literally sacrificed for the advancement of Western society. So there's really, when you look at the extent of what's left of that biome, the largest extent that has remained forested is is here in the state of Maine, stretching into a little bit of Quebec and a little bit of New Brunswick. Ah, that's fascinating. Literally used up, that those forests no longer exist. It's not to say that there aren't forests in those places, no, I understand, but, but they were completely converted for other uses, and in some cases have grown back, but they've grown back in a simplified way. And so when you're looking at a, a depth of ecological values and a, and a species composition and a species richness, our what we call the Acadian forest variant, which is our little chunk of that temperate deciduous forest biome, is it. But think about the value lost. In those places that where, where that forest was contributory to the quality of life of the pla- those places there as it was here, it's gone. That's right. There's something to be learned from this, I assume. There is. There is. And that's, to me, the sort of the amazing opportunity and challenge and, I would say, great responsibility that we carry with us as part of the new emergent forest products industry, the new conservation movement anyone who's involved in stewarding these forested resources here we have in the state of Maine, that's our responsibility is to weigh those, uh, those challenges. Well, it's also, it's more, more demanding and more essential if you're the guardian of what's, you know, a large percentage of what's left. Right. Um, it's great that we seem to be aware of it. Well, I think it's, I think awareness is growing. I think having uh, seen a lot more conversations about about centered around climate change is driving people's understanding of the forest in a new way. And people are starting to to sort of, rather than conceive of themselves as othered from the forest, starting to understand, even in urban areas, that they're connected to these things and that, you know, we no longer, it's not just about the forest in your back 40. Those are critical. Those are important. It's also about these larger forests that, that serve us all. Right. Of course, from my point of view, is also all about the water that sustains the forests, which don't necessarily originate there. Um, before we move on, I do want to just finish that thread of, of the state of the industry today. Um, we hear about uh, supply problems. We hear about bad, poor quality. We hear about all sorts of different kind of wood projects. On the other hand, I'm seeing 
the resurgence of people using wood to build buildings, build bridges, to build arches that support weights, uh, to build skyscrapers. Absolutely. No. And for me, when I take a step back, and this is the historian in me, so I sort of have, I have a hard time not doing this. You know, when you think about where we were in the 19th century, the it was a society that was transforming from a wood-based society as it had been for a long time, where wood was the only disposable, reusable resource you had, to one of, of steel and oil. And, you know, that we are now at another inflection point where we we must, in many cases, move away from, from those commodities that are heavily carbon intensive back to these much more naturally derived materials that can derive the same plethora of benefits that a lot of the synthetic substitutes have been able to do. But the challenge for us is how do we do that at scale in a way that, that doesn't ruin the resource? And I think there's, there's a tremendous number of lessons to be learned in the example of Maine and how we've shifted products to meet market needs and, and how we've conceived and, and thought of forest management differently along the way. And, and so I think that, to me, I think that there's a great opportunity in the, in the industry to, to capture this moment, to recognize that people are interested in wood in a new way. People are demanding um, responsible forest management, and Maine has a, has a long history of that in many instances. It's just up to us to figure out how to balance what I think is going to be an increasing interest in this resource. When I first moved here, it was the, the forest industry was sort of said to be done, uh, and the, the great companies were moving out. They were selling and abandoning their properties. There were threats of ma- you know, these major developments that never materialized. But, but there was this sense that there was no prospect there. But now you're saying something quite different, and that's encouraging. Of course, it could bring back the very problems and values that was deleterious to begin with. Oh, sure, sure. And I, and I would say, again, I think it's, I think it's a, a chapter of, that, of the story has, has closed. I mean, certainly, I don't think we're going to see a return to huge, vertically integrated pulp and paper companies. Hmm. Um, so I, and I'm not sure exactly what the new model will bring, but you've got new people in the conversation now. Hmm. There are more voices in the room than there once was. And I think that that's critical. That's how we're going to solve this together. And, and so, you know, uh, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, when I was growing up, we, we talked about the forest and we talked about its opportunities in a very negative way. I mean, it was, a, it was something that you didn't want to go into. I mean, I, I worked in the woods with a cable skidder and a chainsaw, um, partly because I enjoyed it, but, you know, because it was an opportunity to, to make some money and, and knew that I was going to go on to do something different because people told me time and again that that wasn't a viable career option. That wasn't a, a pathway you could rely on. Um, you know, I, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. There are still great challenges facing all of us to this day. But again, what gives me hope is that that broader range of people being in the room with a voice, expressing ideas, and an openness to problem solve that is new for me. It's new, I think, in many ways for many people. Let's now let's move a little bit now toward the conservation movement and the, what your, you and your colleagues at, at the Appalachian Mountain Club are doing. Can you give us a, a kind of a scope of the conservation, forest conservation um, movement in the state? Sure, sure. So it's, it's a, again, I think Maine's been out in front and trying to find a variety of different ways to, to solve this problem that we've been talking about of how do we keep these forests and how do we keep this constellation of values that these forests represent, uh, you know, 
in an intact state and, and whole to be able to hand it off to the future. And, you know, for a small state with not a lot of population, we have a big heart. And so I'm constantly amazed at the variety of ways that people have approached this problem. You know, we've had some of the largest, we, the conservation community, have had some of the largest forest land conservation easements in the nation have happened in Maine. Some of the first, you know, the Pingree easement um, was astounding. Uh, and there have been many more like that uh, since that time. But even still, there have been other ways where over time, like for us, for instance, as, as the Appalachian Mountain Club, uh, and there have been others as well, we've decided to become large landowners ourselves and to offer a, a new model for ownership and, and balancing ecology and sound ecological management with economics and community vitality. Right. Isn't ownership the fulcrum? Uh, once the ownership changes, then, the, then the, the new owner can do with the resource what they will. But the, in the old days, the, the old owners were sort of locked into a different model. So the idea of, of fee-based ownership of vast amounts of land, federal and state reserves, um, parks, recreation, that sort of thing, as well as the private conservation movement, it, it's been, that seems well-established. Um, do you have any idea of the sort of percentages of the of the main forest is under that kind of protection? Oh boy, you're taxing my memory now. But I've, if memory serves, I think I think the state of Maine has in total just over four million acres of conserved land, um, and I believe that's of all types: state, federal ownership, private conservation easements, and fee, which is incredible. It's an incredible for a, for a state this small because that represents hundreds of millions of dollars invested in our future. And I also think, importantly, it represents a diversity of viewpoints that now have a seat at the table because each one of those projects was unique and had different values and brought different ideas into the room. And that's also essential. Well, each one converted people from an old way of thinking to a new way of thinking. I mean, basically changed the concept of ownership from private to public. Uh, and from exploitation use to conservation use. I mean, it, it's a, an amazing crossroad. Four million acres out of how many? So Maine is the most forested state in the union at 89% forested. I think we are out of 17 million acre state. Mm-hmm. You're taxing my geography mm-hmm. now, Peter, so mm-hmm. somebody will have to correct me on that. Well, let's say it's 16 million so I can do the math. There we go. <laughs> so that's 25% protected. I think that's right. That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, I deal in ocean things, and we, the percentage of ocean protected for all various reasons is, you know, one or two or three percent in marine protected areas and all the rest of it. I mean, and it's fraught because of all these multiple jurisdictions, but you have them here too. It's just a different scale. And you have lots of small landowners, and you have corporate landowners, and then you have big companies that don't, don't need the land anymore. Now, have most of those transferred their land over or are those still those is that land still in corporate ownership that is ambiguous so i would say that we've seen most of the most of the vertically integrated uh, industrial landowners have have gone have come and gone and and there are many many more owners now with a variety of interests um, who come from maybe more the the financial sector um, there are some that that do own mills um, that that are looking to to you know, put fiber into their facilities. But again, I think one of the strengths of Maine and one of the reasons behind why we have this resilient forest is that matrix of owners. 
that mosaic, if you will, of different objectives, different outcomes, different philosophies expressed on a landscape. And that's that's conserved a huge variety of values. Right. So let's take a timid step into the future. The value of biodiversity can be monetized. And in the forest, we have this ability to understand and calculate the sequest carbon sequestration value of a, of a forest. It is something that we know how to do. At first, we never did, but now we seem to have a, an agreed-upon method where we can come in and essentially assess or assign a, a financial value to one use of that forest different from all the rest and new to the market. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that's done? Sure, sure, absolutely. And it's it's a little bit semantics, but it is. I mean, essentially, we've been selling carbon for a long time out of the woods. Mm. I mean, because the carbon is what you know is what's locked up in furniture stock and everything. Right. Um, you know, less so in paper products, but uh, we're just talking about the carbon now, standing where it is, uh, and and locked up into solid wood products too. I mean, it's basically an intensive forest inventory. Um, that is just a, a step above a normal commercial forest inventory that helps us determine the sequestration rates and the, and the potential to store carbon on the stump over time. And, and, and then that's not to say that, that you can't also continue to harvest, but you, know, you can need to continually be growing the stocking in the forest so that you're not depleting its ability to sequester a carbon or, or its ability to, to store it. I keep thinking about every one of those trees that's lost, however, has, has been removed from the inventory of, of sequestration, the sequestration system. So unless you plant one or two or three or four to replace the one that you did, you, the equation, the financial equation is, is, is off kilter. It's sort of like you take the tree away, it becomes an extratality because it's, it, it's lost to the formula. It's lost to the, to the calculation, lost to the balance sheet. Well, it can be in a way. It might be lost to you, the balance, your balance sheet of that acre. But the, again, what you do with those trees is very important. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, there is sequestration and long-term storage in solid wood products. And so again, the, the, the type of trees and the, and the value of those trees that you're growing for, for commercial products dictates how long they can hold carbon in that new form. And that those products have a lifespan but they're not necessarily lost off the balance sheet immediately. Mm -hmm. And don't forget about all of the, the soil carbon that those trees mm -hmm. have been pumping into the soil. That's not monetized, mm -hmm. and that's, uh, that's something that's essential. So even those trees that, have been, that have been, may have been harvested are, are, are storing a huge amount of carbon uh, in the forest soil, probably mm -hmm. way more than what's above ground. Really interesting. It also, of course, it, it argues for investment in fire protection as well and sort of taking planning how you're going to protect the resource. I mean, we have, you know, we have a car, we put it in the garage. We don't leave it on the street necessarily. It's the same idea, isn't it? It is, although I would say, you know, a forester who taught me a lot about being a forester in the state of Maine once said that we have the asbestos forest here in the Northeast. And I, and I, so I sort of chuckled when he told me that. But uh, the more I've learned from forest ecologists and, and uh, climate historians here in Maine, it's somewhat true. I mean, our, our fire cycles are a thousand years apart. Mm. Um, so our forests typically don't burn very often. Uh, now, certainly we are at an inflection point where that could change. But historically, fire has not been a driver in our ecosystems to the same extent that it has been in other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. If anything, I think we're probably going to keep getting wetter. Mm. 
If you're just joining us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with authors and artists who invoke the spirit of Maine. Broadcast live the first Friday of every month here on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal. I'm speaking today with Steve Tatko. Forester, conservationist, educator, and vice president of the Appalachian Mountain Club in Maine. And we're discussing forest history, best practices, and the future of forestry in Maine. I keep coming back to the sequestration value because as carbon markets develop, they already exist. Uh, they exist primarily to serve uh, the concept of offsets, which I find um, a very discouraging uh, way of looking at the problem uh, that you essentially use the solution to enable the continuation of the problem. Uh, so uh, I don't necessarily like the idea of offset value. But I do think that sequestration value does have, could have, a financial incentive built into it that would drive conservation, particularly with a small landowner, a small forest plot holder, where suddenly, as we do now, if you put your land in open space, you get a slight tax, ta property tax deduction. If you, if you put your land in sequestration value, you might get more in such a way so that it provides an income to the property or an incentive to, put, to enjoy the program, but it also bit by bit by bit, assembles an enormous structure of private landowners to supplement the public landowners. Right, right. And in many cases, that can help people make the decision to, to keep their forests as forests if, if they're facing a financial challenge to do so. Right. And I mean, you know, Maine's been pretty proactive in our tax structure. As you mentioned, you know, open space, we have the tree growth tax program. Uh, those were pretty progressive things for their time to enable people to keep family woodlots as family woodlots. And, and you're right, this is another tool that potentially could help people um, financially keep those forests as forests. Are you working on that? Uh, we certainly are, are constantly looking at things like that, and, and we're involved in, in several policy discussions through our policy folks in, in, in how, to, you know, how to sequester more carbon on the landscape and how to encourage good practices on the landscape. We ourselves, as, an, as a landowner, are involved in the, in the carbon markets and have primarily used those carbon credit sales as a way to finance and acquire more forest land. It's right now, it's really, you know, the market is set up to cut trees down and send them away. So it's really the only way that we have to monetize good management in a way that enables us to take those proceeds and, and put them directly into unconserved acres. Uh, not to stick my nose in your business, but couldn't you do both? I mean, you have 100,000 acres. Could you not say, yes, we're going to keep doing this to buy more, to finance buy more, but could you not also demonstrate, create a kind of demonstration project where you took the entirely different way of taking the monetized value of sequestration and demonstrating how, how that value can be calculated and accrued? Absolutely. Somebody has to do that. There are people talking about it, and there are academic people talking about it, but I keep waiting I keep waiting for someone to actually stand up and do it. And, uh, you know, the offset thing started at the beginning, but it was completely co-opted by, by the energy companies, right, by the oil companies. So you – and the sort of idea that your the little offsets are going to somehow save some tribe 
land in in the Amazon. It's a lovely idealistic idea, but when you follow up, you find that the money never got there, and the trees are still being cut. And I, so it strikes me that in that sense of progressiveness in Maine, and particularly in the not-for-profit sector, there's an opportunity here to actually invent again and lead. Yep, you're absolutely right, and 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 I think that was that was certainly our intent when we started to buy land, and mm-hmm. and it has been our intent, and I would say that we have wholeheartedly invested ourselves in that. And by that, I mean um, basing our forest management activities and our business model, um, which is unique. We are not a land trust, mm-hmm. um, and we are different from a lot of our conservation colleagues here in the state in that I work for AMC, the 501c3 nonprofit, but I manage a wholly owned subsidiary, which is an LLC. And so the, the business LLC itself um, is set up such that the growth and yield modeling of the forest is it comes first. In other words, trying to take these formerly industrially managed lands that were mostly managed on an even age basis and kept fairly lightly stocked and grow them back to a much more naturally balanced forest ecosystem that has a, a diversity of species, a diversity of size classes, and has a lot of old trees that are big and large and will stay on the landscape. That's sort of the lens through which we view forest management. And we use forest management actually as a restoration tool and through those, through using harvesting as a restoration tool, that's how we derive the products. The products aren't driving the management. It's the, it's the restoration that's driving the production. And so we're constantly cutting way less than we grow so that we are, we are adding value for the future. My job is to leave the forest in a condition that gives future managers, future local people, a plethora of ecological benefits and a plethora of economic choices that they can continue to steward on for the next generation. And the value in that is not so much monetary as it is this this gift of a holistic place that's been left in a better state than we found it in a way that can provide a broad array of values that we might not even conceive of as important today. But if we don't if we don't think holistically about Again, that, that constellation of values that's present, we won't have the right mindset to think about how to long-term steward these places. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk to you. What you just described is an evocation of the spirit of Maine. And it has in it invention, and it has ingenuity, and it has this kind of conservation-based, uh, sustainability-based value system uh, that's what allowed us even to get here now. Uh, and to protect ourselves to be able to make that kind of that kind of move, we never called it that. We never necessarily recognized it. We did. We dishonored it when it was unnecessarily advocated by people who'd lived it for centuries. But nonetheless, we're doing it again, and hopefully in a in a in a constructive fashion. I assume the LLCs make no money. It doesn't make any money. It they money, break even. It, we try to break even. We, we try to, but I mean, what what money we make goes back into the dirt and in the trees. Right. And is the biodiversity value, the sequestration value, on those companies' balance sheets? I'm not talking about the transactional value. I'm talking about the the resource value, like the inventory value. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we've we've taken a hundred thousand acres and created twenty seven thousand acres of ecological reserves where there's no timber harvesting. We continue to pay taxes on those acres and we always will. Right. But those acres get at what you're talking about, where those are set aside and the approach for restoration is just to let it be. And then the balance of our ownership is where we're employing forest management as a restoration tool. And the, the beauty of it is that 
people are on all of those acres. People are recreating and, and experiencing those places everywhere. There's no place that's not open to people on that landscape. When I ask you about wildness, what would you say? What would you talk? Do you can you include the idea of wildness in the in the justification of what you're doing? Sure, and I have to say that uh, that I I somewhat bristle at the word wild only because it it brings a connotation of of sort of like unkempt and unruly oh. and and like sort of othered from from people hmm. and another point, again, to put into context the main example here, I just am consistently humbled and struck as I started to realize something that the Wabanaki have known for centuries, um, which should be no surprise to anyone. You know, when you look at the geologic history of this place, for 12,000 years, you know, they've inhabited this, this spot of the world. And, you know, there was a period when the glaciers receded and this was a, a, a barren tundra, a grassland, and it took about 5,000 years for trees to grow in this place that we now call Maine. And what's amazing about that, when you think about that, we have this 7,000-year-old forest now here in the state of Maine that has always had people in it. The Wabanaki watched it grow up around them. And so when you conceive of that, it flies in the face of this understanding that we have, that we bring as Westerners, of places that's being wild and othered from people where people don't belong in some way. And so to me, that's this part of this spirit of Maine, that it's a forest that has always had people in it, and people can live in these places. And there are numerous examples where you can live in relation to these places and in balance with these places. And we have this opportunity to capture what's left and to steward it for the future and hand it off hopefully better than we found it. The ocean has this um, uh, sort of de facto presence of solace that people go there, and it's not just about recreation, even if it is. It's not just about tourism, even if it is. The fact that people go and stand by and immerse themselves in the water is, is an emotional, psychological phenomenon that is known and has been built into every sp- set of spiritual values on Earth. It's the same in the forest, isn't it? It's it is. exactly the same thing. It's not, maybe not wildness is not the word, but you're, you're in this kind of authentic, pure nat- natural space. And that speaks to us, even, though, even when we resist it, even when we don't know how to articulate it, it speaks to us. You're, you're talking about the genesis of the AMC. You know, that's what started us in 1876 when we were the oldest conservation group uh, in the United States. And it's that spirit. I mean, there was, you know, at the time in 1876, there was no concept of an NGO. You know, I mean, this is, it was a club. But it was a club of people who, who experienced exactly that sentiment you're feeling, where they, they recreated in these places and through recreation in these places, they developed a sense of stewardship that then developed into a true, deep conservation ethic. And people show up to those spaces and, and show up in these conversations, not only because they're conservationists, but because exactly what you're talking about, because they genuinely care about these outdoor spaces. Whether it's the forest or whether it's their city park or it's, it's the riverfront that they live on or the shorefront, they show up with such deep emotion because that's their connection point to a bigger part of the world. And it's the meaning for them can be as diverse as there are people, 
but it's that connection to the outdoors and that connection to these physical spaces that that we all can feel and taste and smell when you're in those places. And that's that's powerful. That's very powerful. Let's finish. We're running out of time, as always. Great conversation. Thank you so much. Um, let's talk about the 100-mile wilderness. Um, 100 miles. How are you doing? I think when we set out to establish the MWI project in, in really in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think that we thought that it might take 100 years to get to 100,000 acres. And so, you know, here we are 20 years on, and we've achieved this milestone. And um, and it's really, it's largely been, when we look back and reflect on it, because of these relationships to the place and to people that have helped us and these partnerships of people that have leaned in and, and given a hand and, and told us, you know, called us out and said, you should think about this. You should consider this. You're missing this. And... Uh, and to the genuine hard work. And so, I mean, today I look at a place where um, we've got a landscape that are employing some of the same people that have worked in this landscape for their entire careers. But now they're asked to to do something to invest in, in the futures of their children and their grandchildren. And they show up every day knowing that their skills are enabling those changes to happen, whether it's for fisheries restoration, whether it's for these uh, forest restoration projects that we're working on, or whether it's the trail infrastructure that welcomes people who'd never even heard of this place 20 years ago who are now coming. And that's all part of, again, this, this understanding that these places need to be shared to be appreciated and to be protected. I think we'll just stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it really has been. It's always good to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. Oh, goodness. You give me too much credit, but thank you, Peter. (laughs) My guest today has been Steve Tatko, forester, conservationist, educator, and vice president of the main chapter of the Appalachian Mountain Club. My guest next time will be Joan Radner from Lovell, Maine, professor emerita of literature at American University, oral historian, writer, and professional storyteller. Joe has been studying, teaching, telling, and collecting stories for most of her life, and has performed from Maine to Hawaii to Finland. Past president of the American Folklore Society and the National Storytelling Network, she has published books and articles on subjects ranging from early Irish historiography and Anglo-Irish drama to women's folklore, deaf culture, and the New England social history. Her new book, published this year, is Wit and Wisdom, The Forgotten Literary Life of New England Villages. We will be discussing the Lyceum movement in Maine, gatherings in rural towns of community members engaged in debate of the compelling issues of the time, minuted mostly by women, published informally as a chronicle of contemporary concerns and an unexpected archival glimpse into the intellectual history of Maine. Conversations from the Pointed Furs is completing its second full year of interviews with authors and artists to invoke the spirit of Maine. We are ranging far and wide from poetry and traditional song to history and ethnography to arts and administration and art making. Forthcoming interviews will address quilt making as craft and social expression and the renaissance of organic farming. We would be very interested in hearing from you as members of the conversation. If you have comments or suggestions of potential interviews in 2024, please forward them to info.pointedfurs at gmail.com. 
And don't forget your annual contribution to WERU online at WERU.org, the station that welcomes this program and so many others as the heart of our main community. Thanks for listening. You've been tuned in to Conversations from the Pointed Furs, Elite's Island Books audio project. Produced by Trisha Badger. Theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music. Hosted by Peter Neal. Visit pointedfurs.org for more information and find us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.